Good morning, everyone. Or as we would say in Madagascar, Akuriabsika. Did we get that? Akuriabsika. And to that, you would just say Salama. So we'll, we'll try it again. Okay, so I say, when I say it to you, you just say Salama back. I'll try to get out of this feedback here. All right? Akuriabsika. All right, you guys know how to speak Malagasy. Uh, we are coming to you from the island of Madagascar, and uh, really it's just a joy to be here with you, a little unexpectedly for us. Um, Tessa is pregnant. Um, as, uh, as Scott was introducing us, uh, our little baby boy, Tyndall, will be born uh, sometime around the 23rd of September. And uh, because of that and the complications of COVID, we weren't expecting to be here right now, but here we are. And uh, actually, do not know when we'll be able to go back because the borders in Madagascar are closed. But in the meantime, we are really glad to be here with you as your witnesses um, of what God is doing in Madagascar and share a little bit about our story, share a story from God's Word, and uh, hopefully an encouragement and challenge uh, from God's Word this morning. So let's see. Uh, a little bit about, about me, about us. Uh, I first connected with Pendleton Street in college, going to North Greenville University, up the road a little ways, and uh, actually got to share uh, at, with you all when I first came back as a journeyman. Uh, I don't think I shared at the time that I had met Tessa there in Madagascar. We were still, still working out some of the details of that relationship. Um, but just a little intro into, uh, I guess, us and our personalities when I first arrived in Madagascar, yeah, there's our, our family right there with uh, Shiela, who's sitting right here, and uh, Jairison, hopefully not screaming his head off in the nursery back there. When I first arrived in Madagascar, it, it's about 18 hours driving to get from the capital where you first fly in down to where we worked, where Tessa actually was already working at the time. And uh, the missionary family that had adopted her, uh, that uh, she was working with, that picked us up in the capital... The whole way down there, so 18 hours, I'm hearing, you know, Tessa is the greatest missionary that they've ever met. Tessa knows how to speak the language better than anyone that they've ever known. And they just wish every missionary could be like Tessa. So after 18 hours of getting that over and over again, um, when I got there, the thought in my head was, I don't know who this girl is, but she is going down. By the time that I leave here, they're going to be saying, Nathan is the best missionary that they ever knew. Nathan was the one that spoke the language best. They wish everybody could be like Nathan. So long story short is I met Tessa, and if you can't beat them, you marry them, right? So here we are. Uh, I call Tessa the real missionary, and I'm just her sidekick. But uh, Tessa was, uh, at the time, working with groups of Malagasy brothers and sisters to make Bible stories available in the different dialects where we worked. Because they, they have a Bible in Madagascar, it would be something like, our, something like for us in English reading King James, if that King James was written in Old English. It, doesn't, it, it does not uh, translate, uh, no pun intended, but it doesn't translate to them. They cannot understand it because it's not the language that they speak among their different tribes. So Tessa was putting those stories into dialects, which then we took those stories and shared them with different tribes in more rural areas. And as we did that, as they heard God's word, heard about Jesus, uh, some of them for the first time, uh, God used that. And especially as they began to 
not only accept the stories for themselves, but they told those stories to friends and family. They started forming communities where they were telling those stories and acting out what they heard in those stories. And uh, initially, IMB missionaries planted three churches. I want you to, to hear this loud and clear. IMB missionaries planted three churches. God uh, took that. Obviously, that was you know, in and of itself a work of God. But God took that and through our Malagasy brothers and sisters, through those tribes, uh, planted, at this point, there's over uh, 100 churches in that area. And then the majority of those are planted by those, those Malagasy, uh, those tribes that first heard in their own dialect the stories from God's word. And then we're obedient to that. Uh, so they were, they were using those stories, they were considering themselves a church as they were hearing the stories from Acts, that, one of which we're going to hear this morning, and uh, they just they kept growing. Um, in the middle of all of that, uh, we've been in and out of Madagascar for the past eight years. In uh, 2019, we actually were here with you all, uh, I think when my brother Andrew was speaking, as they prepared to go to the mission field. Uh, because we were, we were here for that time, taking care of Tessa's dad. Um, Tessa's dad, Roger, passed away in April of 2019. And then we uh, left in 2019 to go back to Madagascar, and basically we're just getting settled when, when COVID hit. Uh, so Tessa can share a little bit about that. life has been like for the last uh, 18 months and um, how we can pray for you. Um, but we, for us in Madagascar, um, the, so Madagascar is an island off the coast of uh, Africa, the East Coast, and uh, it's about the size of Texas. So both um, population and geography, it's about the size of Texas. Um, and it is a poorer country. Um, it, it, became independent from being a French colony in the 1960s, so still fairly recently. Um, and so where we live is in the southwest of the island. There's When you think of Madagascar, you probably think, you know, jungles and rainforests and all those things are there, but we live in the desert, so our part is very dry. Um, and it, it, because of that, it is definitely the poorest part of the, of the country, um, just because, you know, when there's no rain, you can't grow food. Um, so in 2018, just as an example, I think we had rain two days that whole year. So it's really difficult for subsistence farmers to um, grow food when there's no rain. Um, and so COVID kind of took that fragile situation and just pushed it over the edge. So there were a lot of people who were sick. A lot of people did die. But also things like the roads being closed or the international borders being closed to tourism and foreign aid, um, all of those had big, far-reaching effects on um, the communities that we uh, witness there in the Southwest. And so um, just like I think everywhere, that pressure uh, brought out a lot <laughs> in those communities. So even within our churches, we saw, um, and I mean, just like in our own hearts, and I imagine here as well, we saw a lot of good and we saw a lot of bad. Um, our churches struggled. They struggled with, you know, internal tensions that were already there, um, 
coming to the rising to the top because of the pressures of COVID. Um, and we, you know, we saw some church splits and some things like that. At the same time, we watched those pastors and those churches come together, take care of each other, take literally the, the nothing that they had and share and spread it around to others, um, who they could see had even less. And so, um, we, we were really, um, humbled and just moved by what we saw and um, we just we want to tell you that um, you have family in Madagascar you have believing family in Madagascar um, and they need your prayers but they're so grateful for you and the ways that you've already blessed them um, during this time and we'll tell more about that but we're just we're thankful to be able to share um, with you about your family in Madagascar and um, to share with you as our family here at Pendleton Street. So uh, we would like, again, to share some stories with you, a story from God's Word, some stories from Madagascar, and a challenge to all of us. Just a quick disclaimer, uh, we do have a Bible up here, just, just in case you're wondering. Um, but in Madagascar, because the, the majority of people that we work with cannot read or write, and not to say that they are not highly intelligent, they are highly intelligent people, they just can't read or write, um, a lot of that has to do with the educational system as well, but... We do everything in story, in oral story. So we're going to share a little bit of that with you, share a story with you. You've already heard it, read from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. But we'd like to share an encouraging story from God's Word. Stephen was dead, and everything erupted into chaos. People in the name of God had killed Stephen, beat him to death, pulverized him with rocks, and now everybody was scattering. People were disappearing overnight. Some of them were getting locked up. Some of them were killed. But most of them were just running as far away as they could to get away from the persecution. But as they ran away, the places that they were going to, they were always telling the story of Jesus. At first, only to Jews, only to the people that looked like them, sounded like them, and and thought like them. But there were people, there were disciples of Jesus that had come from other places as well. And as they went to these lands, as they scattered, they told the stories of Jesus not only to Jews, but to non-Jews. People that didn't look like them, sound like them, or think like them. And the craziest thing happened. When they started to share those stories with the non-Jews, they started coming to Jesus in droves. Now, word got out. And the church in Jerusalem, when they heard that in this place, Antioch, there had been a new church planted, predominantly among non-Jews, they sent a man named Barnabas to go check it out, see if it was real. This man Barnabas was a man of outstanding character, full of the Holy Spirit. And when he went to Antioch, he actually didn't come back. He didn't go back to Jerusalem because when he got there, he saw God's hand on that place. He saw everybody coming to faith in Jesus. And he encouraged them to continue following after Jesus and stayed there and encouraged them and taught them. Then after a little while, Barnabas left again, not to go back to Jerusalem, but to go and find his friend Saul. Saul, you may remember, was the one that had actually been a persecutor of the church. He was one that was locking people up before until Jesus got a hold of them. And once Jesus got a hold of them, he began telling the story of Jesus too. So much so, he was telling it especially to the non-Jews, and so much so that people wanted to kill him. So then the church had sent him off into hiding, And that's where Barnabas found him, in Tarsus. And he convinced 
uh, he convinced Paul, convinced Saul, to come back with him to Antioch, and they worked together there for a year. And they were encouraging the, ter- the church and teaching with them and meeting with them for that whole year. And there, in Antioch, that was the first time that people called the disciples of Jesus Christians. Now, there were some prophets that came up from Jerusalem. And one of them stood up and in the Holy Spirit began saying that there was going to be a famine on the whole land. Now, when the church in Antioch heard that, they gathered together whatever they could to send to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And they sent it with Barnabas and Saul so that they could help their brothers and sisters, their new family in Jerusalem. That's the story from God's Word, from Acts 11, verses 19 to 30. Now, this story, the reason that we want to share this story and the stories from Madagascar with you this morning is so that we can have hope as a church this morning. From this story, we see that our resilience as the family of God, as this new family that Jesus is making, is just that. It it has nothing to do with our, our personal safety or our comfort. really has nothing to do with what's going on in this nation or not. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus is making us all into a new family. It's a family. As Christians, we are part of a family that is born out of adversity, a family where all of us have a role to play, and a family that, of people that really shouldn't be together, people that don't, uh, don't all look the same, sound the same, think the same, and yet take care of each other. And that, that is the hope that we have that can get us through this time of adversity this morning. Let, let's just walk through, this is again like what we would do in Madagascar, let's walk through the story a little bit. I, I, will, <clears throat> excuse me, I will never forget when we first started doing these stories, especially from the book of Acts, with this particular tribe, the Mahafali, in Madagascar, whether it was sitting in on Tessa crafting the stories or then retelling them over and over again to people, it just got ingrained in my brain that there is, there is one line at the beginning of every story. Stephen was dead. After Stephen was dead. After Stephen died and Saul persecuted the church. After Stephen died and James was beheaded. After Stephen died and Peter was thrown into jail. And what followed that is the church grew more and more. After Stephen died, the church grew more and more. After Peter was in prison, the church grew more and more. And it just, it became ingrained in me that the story of Acts really starts after Stephen died. When adversity comes, that is when God begins to grow his church and especially to reach other kinds of people, not just the Jews there in Jerusalem. I think we all know Acts 1-8 here. Maybe, Maybe we don't all know it, but many of us have heard Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, even to Samaria, and to, unto the ends of the earth. But I think we may forget that Acts 1.8 never happens in the story until Acts 8.1. What's Acts 8.1? And Saul approved of his ex- execution. This is after the death of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, the church doesn't start to to move out and fulfill that promise that Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in, in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth 
until the persecution comes. It is through times of adversity. Church, are we in a hard time right now? Does anybody think that this is easy, what the whole world's going through in this pandemic? This is hard. And yet it is in the hard times, in the times of adversity, that God does his best work and grows and strengthens his church. It is out of adversity that the new family is born. Um, Tessa is going to share a little bit about that from Madagascar. Yeah, because in the Antioch story, we get to see um, the way that God uses diversity to grow the church, especially through the character of Barnabas. And one of the first things that Barnabas does is he realizes, oh, wow, I'm not enough for this. I need other people to help me. He goes right and gets Saul. Um, and we saw that this uh, this past year. You know, as I said, things were really tough in Madagascar for our churches, and we really wanted to help with a food distribution. And so um, we worked with Sin Relief, which is the um, the human needs part of the Southern Baptist Convention. So your gifts as a Southern Baptist church help to fund um, all the projects that Sin Relief does. And so we requested funds to do a food distribution. You can see um, in the picture uh, an example of, of that, bags of rice and beans and oil and fish for each family. Um, and so we were able to provide um, food to families from three different communities in our town, um, thanks to you all here in the U.S. Um, you, as brothers and sisters, provided that uh, through Send Relief. Um, and it was so it would not have been possible us by ourselves. We needed you all. We also needed our local pastors um, there in Madagascar. You can see the one, the man in the pink mask. He's one of our local pastors. And um, that project would not have been possible without those local pastors. They were the ones that could look across a community, which from our perspective, everybody's struggling. Nobody's eating three meals a day. Nobody has enough food or nutrition. But yet they could say, well, but this family, their need is greater, and they're the ones we need to prioritize. They could make those decisions, and they were the ones willing to have those conversations, as painful as those were. Um, They were also the ones going into the market and getting the price down so we could get the most food um, for the amount of money that they, that we had and so that we didn't um, have any problems with pricing based on being foreigners. Um, they were the ones that organized the distribution, that mobilized their churches to come, to sleep with the food, to keep it safe, to divide it all up, even when those people sometimes weren't the ones receiving it. Those pa- And those pastors, by and large, they received nothing. They're just as hungry, had just as many needs as their as their church families, but they made the choice to um, prioritize other families. Or even one of our friends that helped us, um, he you know called as his family, you know, three teenagers that had been disowned, a couple of orphan children, and then still made his own tickets and distributed his portion out to as many other people as he could find. Um, so. That, that work of giving that food to those three communities, that was just a beautiful example of this family, God's family at work, because it, it was certainly not possible just with Nathan and I. It's not possible without you all, the family here in the U.S., and it was not possible without those church families and church leaders there in Madagascar. Um, God needed all of us working together to make that happen. There's, there's no such thing as a family of one. And Jesus' family, as you see on the slide there, it, it's not about any one individual. It's not about the, the gifting of any one individual. It's about everybody 
doing their part, playing their role in that family. Just like Tessa just shared, we could not have done that without you all. You all could not have gotten that that help to them uh, without us. But none of us could have done it without those local pastors who were organizing everything and and put put their uh, lives on the line in some cases to to distribute that food. So it all it all works together. Just like we see Barnabas, he does not look to himself when he arrives in Antioch. His immediate thought is, "I cannot do this by myself." And he goes and gets his friend Saul. Friends, can any of us do this alone? We're, we're in the middle of COVID right now. And I mean, if anything, I think it has, as, as Tessa was saying, brought those tensions to the surface. You know, we need to do what we can to social distance, to mask, to mask up and to keep people safe, to care for one another, because we need each other. So in the middle of that, like, it has been uh, extremely hard to be creative and to still connect with one another, but we... I think we all have felt that, that we have to connect with one another because we need each other. Now, in the story, there is also a, uh, a racial and an ethnic component to what Barnabas is doing. I don't know if you, you caught that or not, but when Barnabas shows up in Antioch, he shows up to a place where he is the minority, where the majority of people that are coming to faith in Christ are not Jewish. And what does Barnabas do? He does not look within himself to meet that need, he knows that he has a friend named Saul that that God has uniquely equipped and gifted to minister in that community. And so he goes way out of his way. That trip that Barnabas takes to go get Saul is like if we dropped everything and started walking or hitchhiking to Athens, Georgia. That's how far Barnabas is going to find Saul. And he goes and gets him and brings him back because it's that important. He, He needs to partner with somebody else to do the work that God is doing, to, to partner with the work that God is doing in Antioch there. And um, I, I don't know if we, uh, we caught this. The, the third thing that we want to talk about from the story is that little line about this is the first time that they were called Christians, that the disciples of Jesus were called Christians. Did you catch that? Uh, this hit me like a ton of bricks when we were going through this story because I don't think I'd really thought through it before. That's not just like a historical detail that Luke drops on us there. Um, You know, when Luke is writing Acts, he's not just saying, oh, by the way, in case you were wondering, this was the first time that they threw the the term Christian out. What's happening in the flow of the story is that as people from outside are looking at this group of believers, these disciples of Jesus that are meeting, they're not one recognized group. If they were all Jewish, they would have just said, oh, look, the Jews are meeting. If they were all Gentiles, they would have just said, oh, look, the Gentiles are meeting. But the community is looking at this, this, this multi-ethnic group, people that do not all look the same, do not all sound the same, speak the same language, do not all think the same, and they don't have a category for it. And so they literally have to invent a word to describe what's going on. And because all of them are worshiping Christ, they say, yeah, I guess we'll call them Christians. See, it's, it's not that we have to, it, the distinctive thing about us as Christians is not that we overlook our differences or ignore them. It's that we're actually strengthened by our differences and made unique and distinct by that. And we don't, as Christians, we don't all look the same or sound the same, speak the same language or think the same. We are united through uh, the love of Christ. 
and sanctified through that. Just like a, a husband and a wife, when they get married, uh, are two distinct people. You know, it's not, they, don't, uh, they don't become different people or, or just one person when they marry. Two distinct people, but united through love. And that's the picture of the church. That's what makes us distinct as Christians. In Madagascar, uh, you know, the people there, as you can see, here's a picture of our, uh, our biological family and our family there in Madagascar. We don't all look the same. Uh, Malagasy people, are, in general, are dark-skinned. They don't speak English. They speak Malagasy, uh, all different kinds of dialects of it. And they definitely don't think the same as us. And yet Jesus has made us all a family. Um, and in fact, just as, uh, just as Barnabas reached out to Saul because he had a unique gifting to minister in that place, we, again, want to thank you all for allowing us to do the same thing. It's because of your, your giving, your blessing, that we were able to learn Malagasy, to learn Malagasy culture, uh, enough to be a part of this family. And um, when we're there with our family and, and worshiping, Malagasy call white-skinned people Bazaha, um, just generally for, especially for Europeans, but any, anybody with white skin, just Bazaha. And um, when, when we're together in church, it's not that, you know, it's just my family there that the people say, oh, look, there's the Bazaha. And it's not even just all Malagasy people, it's, it's both, right? There's, there's Christians worshiping there, and they're, they're worshiping Christ together. Um, even even uh, here, in, since we have been here in the United States, we're over at a mission house in Berea. And the other day we went out to lunch after the church service, and the restaurant that we were there, that we ate at there in Berea, uh, we were the only white people there, the only ones not speaking Spanish. And my first thought uh, well, I guess I had two first thoughts. My first thought was, if I was going to live here, I better start speaking Spanish. My second thought was, actually, I just need to get Olivia, because she could probably help me out in here. Um, but again, to, to actually be a part of the family of God in Berea, I, I would need to, my thought as a missionary is I, I would have to learn Spanish or, or get Olivia, or even better, there's all of these Hispanic churches lined up and down the road. I should reach out to one of them and see what is going on in their community. See how I can, I can come alongside those brothers and sisters, listen to them, learn from them, just like we do in Madagascar, pray for them, see if there's any way that, that we can partner in what they're doing. What we see in the story is that the Christians are uniquely and, and distinctly united through their differences. Not, not even in spite of or ignoring, but through their differences. And the very next thing that you see in that story is that they take care of each other. That when the word comes through the prophet that there's going to be a famine, these, these non-Jewish, this predominantly non-Jewish church does not hesitate, doesn't even think before they gather up what they have and send it to help their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem because they know that they're a family. We had a, another unique opportunity to see um, the way that God's family works um, in and among uh, our biological or natural families. Um, so one of our friends in Madagascar, a young man in our church, um, he you know, came to Christ. He's been studying God's word and the stories for a long time. 
and he felt this deep burden to share with his own family. So he started gathering, you know, his brothers, their wives, their kids, um, his mom, and doing Bible stories with them. And that many of them trusted in Christ and became a big part of our church. Um, but but not his father. His father has not yet trusted in Christ. And so, um, so earlier this year, our friend passed his um, his college entrance exam. So this would be like the SAT and ACT and the GED kind of all rolled in together. And um, he was it, he was the first person in his family to pass this. So it was a really big deal. And his dad was really happy and wanted to do a sacrifice, um, thanking the ancestors for this amazing thing that had happened. And so obviously our friend was you know really troubled by this, didn't want to do it. His family was really troubled. But um, respect for elders and especially for fathers is really really important in the culture. So um, you know it wasn't as simple as just saying. No, we're not going to do that. We it was it was a big deal, and so he came and talked with us about it, and you know we we prayed with him, and we came up with an idea and worked together with some of the churches, basically to do a a graduation party for all the people who had graduated, and you know his parents came, and that was fun, and it was interesting, but it really didn't solve the problem culturally, um, and so then. At the same time, we had a gathering of um, leaders, so leaders from our town, church leaders, and and let you know young men and women learning, also from the rural area to the north and the rural area to the south. They all came together. So we had, I mean, we had some men that have been Christians for some time now and are you know old respected men in their um, communities. We also had young men, you know, brand new Christians leading these little fledgling churches. Um, we had women as well. And so, um, our friend brought his problem to this group. This group comes from multiple tribes. Um, but the one thing they have in common is that they have all walked away from the worship of, of ancestors. Uh, unlike us, um, we've, our parents have never asked us to sacrifice a goat, uh, to thank God for something good that happened. So, you know, we didn't really have that firsthand experience, um, of, of what to do. Um, but this group did. And they had a lot of different ideas. They disagreed with one another. They, you know, some of those older men, they really understood where the father was coming from, you know, even though they agreed that they shouldn't do it. Um, so anyway, they worked together and they prayed for our friend and then they came up with a plan and they all worked together to execute this plan. And this was that the family would host a big party. And they would um, serve everybody food. So, you know, there was still a goat that was killed, but it wasn't killed with the blessing for the ancestors. It was killed just as a meal. And um, in the meantime, the some of those women that were in that group discussing the problem, they sang Christian songs and led the group in um, in worship. And one of those other young men got up and shared a Bible story. And then uh, our friend's father was dressed up, and he had the honor of other older men in our friend's life, older pastors, coming and paying their respect and praying over him and giving thanks to God for what he had done. And so um, because of this diverse group of um, of believers, I mean, even in that group meeting together discussing what to do, um, you have us from America, you have... Um, people from tribes in Madagascar that used to um, enslave other tribes. 
that were also there. Their, their descendants were also there. And some of them even, um, you know, some of those slaves, as we know our own history, came all the way through Europe and all the way here. And yet all of us together, this diverse and ragtag group um, with, you know, wrong in our past um, and in our, our culture's past, we're working together to to solve this problem. And the, the solution came through everybody working together. And as a result, um, our friends... Our friend had a big family, the, the whole family of God, working together to help his natural family with this problem. And his dad was honored, and even more than that, Jesus was glorified through that witness to the whole community. It's stories like that that really encourage us uh, in what's going on in Madagascar. I, I told you that they have planted over 100 churches there. That's not happening anymore post-COVID. I mean, you know, they're not going bananas planting churches in every village. What's happening is that in this time of crisis, just like in the story where you see, uh, first that you see the time of adversity with the persecution, and then after that, a famine hits, like what is going on? But it is actually through that new family that God cares for his people in the same way we have seen the church these different tribes in Madagascar, which, as Tessa said, have a complicated history with each other, taking care of one another. They took up an offering to send down for, for famine relief, a famine that's still ongoing, by the way. And that is what gives us hope, is to see, see Jesus' new family taking care of one another. Um, there was uh, one of the men that was in the story that Tessa just told. His name is Imora. He's a pastor, a pastor of one of those churches I just mentioned. And uh, in the Mahafali tribe, it is, it is customary, it's just their culture to really not care well for women. Women are basically there to care for the men and to have babies. And that's, that's pretty much their culture. Um, we, you know, obviously, we had taught through the Bible with Amora. We had tried to model different things, even within our family. Amora has eaten with us, been in our home, you know, watched me do things that he would not do in his own family. And to be honest, all that basically left Amora with was the impression that I was not a very manly man. Um, it was only when Amora took a trip, we had a kind of a conference where we had multiple Malagasy believers. Our family was there as well, but it, the majority, Malagasy believers, all from different tribes, all following Jesus. And there, something happened that blew Amora's mind. He saw a man washing a cup. Men don't do that in his tribe. He saw men handing coffee out to women. Once again, big no-no. That's woman's work. He saw men caring for women, men caring for men, men cooking and serving food. And again, it blew his categories. He comes home and he asks his wife, he says, Honey, would you like it if I helped you with the cooking? If I, like, watched the kids, did some laundry? And she was like, yes, I've just been waiting on you to ask. And that, that changed their family. That changed the whole church. Now when we have meetings, while other men make fun of him and call him a woman, Amora is out there serving us coffee, washing up dishes, taking care of his kids, checking in on his wife, helping her with the cooking. And now his wife is able to, able to take a, a larger role even in the church. And the whole church is benefiting from it. All because... 
if Mora came into contact with Jesus' new family, with people that looked more like him, but didn't think like him. Some of them don't even speak the same dialect that he speaks. But watching that new family, Imora learned how to better take care of other people, of his own family. So, just to end up, my question for all of us, ourselves included, is how are we doing? How are we doing as Jesus' new family? Are we taking care of each other? Do we believe that during this time, during the pandemic, that God might do something miraculous and grow his church and reach out to other people? Are, are we being that new family that does not all look the same, do not all speak, speak the same, speak the same language, do not all think the same? A church, are we a church of multiple cultures and multiple ethnicities, multiple ways of thinking, multiple political identities? Are we that right now? How are we doing with that? We want to encourage you that you have taken part in caring for Jesus' family in Madagascar. Our churches, our brothers and sisters there, they think of you. Even though they have not met you, they call you their brothers and sisters. They call you pilungu, which means family. You are their family. And we told them the whole time that it was people and churches like you that were providing for them in their time of need. So thank you. Thank you for for providing for our family, giving us the opportunity to be there and to be family with them. How are we doing that? That, That's across the world. How are we doing across Greenville? You know, how are we doing in places like Berea? I don't know because we we haven't been here. how, How are our churches doing? How is our family doing in Berea? How is the family doing in City View? Are we taking care of them? Are we listening when they say that they're in pain or that they, they need help with something? Are we coming alongside them and, and praying? Because what I do know, the problem is that the, at least the research shows that most of us, in terms of the people that we talk to about important things, really are only talking to people that look like, think like us, act like us, and um, especially in, in the church. I think the statistics are that, that 8 out of 10 of us, uh, actually the people that we talk to look, look and think and sound exactly like us. So how are we doing with that? We see in the story uh, that Barnabas, when he is faced with a similar situation, when he walks in and, and faced with a situation that out- outmatches him, he reaches out to his friend Saul. Do we have a friend like Saul, somebody that God has uniquely gifted and equipped to minister in a context like that. We have benefited so much from having our Malagasy brothers and sisters who God has equipped, as Tessa was saying from that food distribution, to, uh, to minister in those contexts and that we can partner with. Do we have anybody like that here in, in this church, in our community? If we do, praise God. That is a, a huge blessing and I would just encourage you, if you know somebody like, if you have a Saul like that, get coffee with them and, you know, just ask, intentionally ask questions about, you know, how can we pray for them more? What can we learn from them? How can we, we do things better? And if we don't know anybody like that, then I know Tessa and I have tried to be intentional about reading books from our brothers and sisters who are writing from a different perspective, listening to podcasts. That is a place to start. Um, 
I also know that we have, we, God has his family here in Greenville. We have brothers and sisters, uh, African-American, Hispanic, Eastern European, and I'm sure many more. I'm just naming the ones that I've either heard about or come into contact with since we've been here so far. And we can learn from them. We can, we can listen to them and, and learn from them and try to come alongside and partner with them and what Jesus is doing in his family here in Greenville. Because as we see in that story, that, brothers and sisters, is what will get us through this time, is, is us all playing our own part in a time of, of adversity in Jesus' new family that even though it's a bunch of people that you would think would never be together, are taking care of each other. And that's how we'll make it through this time, according to the scripture and according to what we have seen in Madagascar. So I'm going to close this out just by reading a prayer that Paul wrote to uh, a church in the little town of Rome, another church that uh, was made up of people that didn't all look the same, speak the same language, or think the same. And this was what he prayed for them in uh, Romans, um, Romans 15. There we go. I got it up on the screen there. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Thank you, guys.